What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. This hour, we're going to do a national town hall meeting with Congressman Ro Khanna. He is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 17th District of California, more or less the Silicon Valley area in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. And you can tweet him at Rep. Ro, R-O, Khanna, Rep as in representative. And Congressman Kano, welcome back to the program. It's great to have you. A number of my callers, when I announced that you would be on taking calls, asked me to ask you if the Progressive Caucus plans on doing in the next legislative session the kind of theatrical performance art that got lots and lots of uh, free media or earned media, as the phrase goes, for their causes and sometimes actually produced results back in the, uh, you know, the 2010 and 2012 Congresses by the uh, Tea Party Caucus. Well, Tom, I appreciate that. I think we're open to doing something. Were there sort of concrete suggestions of what uh, no. they think? That, <laughs> it was that just, why be? don't we see the Progressive Caucus on TV every day like we used to see the Tea Party Caucus? I think that was the essence of the question. Well, you know, I think it's fair. I think the pandemic has made it harder, frankly, just for Congress to be as visible. I mean, there are a lot of people who are from California or Texas or other parts who are not being able to travel in who are having to vote remotely or with their districts. And so it's it's a bit harder. But I think having the remote virtual Zoom call and being more active and visible is, is uh, important, particularly given the issues of our time where you have extraordinary demands to reform the criminal justice system, police violence, have health care for everyone, Medicare for all. That is absolutely critical. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Before we pick up calls here, and we've got a bunch of them for you, anything that you want to highlight or point out to our listeners you, you don't want to slip by here in this hour? Well, you know, we passed the Justice and Policing Act. It had uh, Lacey Clay and my Peace Act in it, which, as we've discussed on previous shows, would change the standard of force to comply with human rights law and international law. Every other uh, major democracy says force can only be used as the last resort. We're still going around with the sense that if an officer says it's reasonable, they can use force. And so if an officer says comply with my order and a person doesn't comply under the, uh, the law, they can use deadly force. And that has to change. It's passed the House. Now it's up to the Senate. And there are other good provisions in that bill that passed the House. It ends qualified immunity for police officers. It ends chokeholds. It makes it much easier to prosecute cops for abuse. So I really think we need the continued mobilization so that we get something through the Senate. Do you think that's possible? I mean, Tim Scott, the Republicans offered a, a piece of legislation to control the police that basically said, please be nice. We'd like you to be nice. Here are our goals. And you guys are saying, if you guys aren't nice, we're going to kick you out on your butts, um, you know, or prosecute you. But, you know, is Mitch McConnell going to go along with this? Well, you know, that's an exactly correct summary. I mean, people say, well, bro, what do you object to with Tim Scott or the bill? And I say, you know, it's not that I object so much. I just don't think it's going to solve the underlying issues. I mean, if you want to collect data, fine. If you want to have greater diversification and de-escalation, fine. Those are all fine steps. But 
unless you change the standard of force, unless you allow police officers to be sued for grossly reckless conduct, unless you change the standard that allows more police to be prosecuted for violence, you're not going to solve the problem. So unfortunately, I think it's an uphill battle in the Senate. You know, the McConnell wanted to just do something. And I think it's going to be an uphill battle to convince them that we need structural change. And that's why we need the continued uh, mobilization. I will say that people say, well, what did all the protests accomplish? I'll, I will say change the Democratic Party. I mean, there were only 22 people or so on my bill with Lacey Clay to change the standard of force. It was tough to get presidential candidates on it. I mean, Bernie was for it, but you know, it wasn't something that people were very vocal about. And now 231 Democrats voted for it. So at least it shifted the Democratic yeah. thinking. That's great. That's great. Step by step. Okay, let's pick up our phone calls here. Dan in Naperville, Illinois. You're on the air with Congressman Khan. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Listen, I got a question, and it is uh, basically this. Why is there no requirement for full financial disclosure for people running for federal office? I have a president right now who, as far as I know, is a wholly owned subsidiary of Vladimir Putin LLC. Why is there no requirement for federal, for full financial disclosure? Dan, there is. I mean, I uh, fill out my financial disclosure forms uh, every year. In fact, I have to disclose not just my assets, but also my wife's. And I'm almost positive that you have to do that as a candidate. Now, maybe you don't have to disclose your spouse as a candidate, but you almost certainly have to disclose your own. I mean, I remember filling out financial disclosure forms as a candidate. So I would just check to make sure they're actually complying with the law. Tom in St. Paul, Minnesota, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Well, thank you for taking my call. Keep up the good work. I'm calling because I don't think that Trump is going to be the candidate for the Republicans. And I don't think we're going to know who is going to be the candidate for the Republicans until he pulls his fast one at the Republican convention. So he's going to say, Oh, I did twice as much in half the time. I was the best president right to his grave. I was the best president that ever lived. And just to avoid that narrative, that public story, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, if you impeach him for conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman, you can see that, you know, you can have two instances for every day that he was in office where he violated that basic military code that if you have a character that is so morally bad, you can't lead other people. You can't lead troops. And so just say he's, he's totally dysfunctional, but just say, you know, his conduct is terrible. Yeah. Let's let and Congressman Conner respond to your point, Tom. I, 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 I think you've made your point a couple of times here. Congressman? Well, I appreciate the point, and I guess here's why I'm skeptical that he's going to withdraw. He faces potentially a criminal prosecution if he's no longer president, and that's not because Biden or Democrats are going to call for it. That's just the course, the law, independent investigations where U.S. attorneys and others will take. And I think he is partly desperate to win uh, so that he can get past the five-year statute of limitations and avoid uh, those consequences. So I'm not saying you you may be right, but his fear of uh, prosecution may trump his fear of his own self-esteem. Yeah, there was a, an op-ed, I think it was in the Financial Times this morning, speculating that he might defer to uh, Pence in exchange for basically a pardon, a Jerry Ford kind of situation. What do you think? I, I mean, that I think is, 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 is possible, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think he thinks Pence could win. So he, maybe he would do it if he loses and then and resigns uh, uh, for Pence to pardon him right before that, I could see. Yeah, yeah. Interesting stuff. This is the Tom Hartman Program. You can tweet him at Rep. Ro, R-O, Kana. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that Chief Justice John Roberts, back when he worked for Ronald Reagan, came up with a way that Congress and the White House could get around the Supreme Court? Specifically, they were trying to blow up uh, Roe v. Wade and Brown versus Board, but it could be used by Democrats right now. It's fascinating. It's in my new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court, 
and the betrayal of America. Check it out. Thanks so much. Alfredo in Mountain View, California. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yeah, thank you, Congressman. Thank you, Tom, for keep educating us all about things on our lives here. But I wanted to make a comment about our urge. Perhaps we need to urge all Americans to vote by mail, something that Republicans are trying to impede voters to do so. And I also wanted you to comment on Trump appointing this Clooney to the United States Postal Service to be in charge of, and if that could be a threat to voting by mail. Thanks. Well, I completely agree with you. You know, there's a group, a nonprofit group, that is working on making sure that we're educating uh, uh, African-American, Latinx, and younger voters on vote by mail. I mean, it's not just, we have two challenges. One is the legal challenge and the structural challenge where Trump and Republican governors in certain states are going to try to uh, do everything to minimize uh, vote by mail. Then we have the the, the, the the cultural challenge, which is that a lot of our voters are not used to voting by mail, that they are used to going to the polls. And how do we educate them about the process? And the second is as important as the first. James in Hollywood, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Greetings, Professor and Congressman. Bill Barr deserves to be behind bars. He's destroying the rule of law in the U.S. And can you begin a full investigation? Only Congress can investigate them and please begin impeachment. My wise professor said he must be removed. He must and begin impeachment of Bill Barr and remind Barr and all Trumplicans Nixon's AG went to jail. James, I appreciate that. And my understanding, Steve Cohen is on the Judiciary Committee, is drafting up articles of impeachment. I do think someone from the Judiciary Committee will. And you're right to point out that while in our history, presidents usually don't go to jail, uh, cabinet members don't have that same grace period. And and a lot of them do end up uh, in in jail, a number of them have. So I do think a lot of his conduct is is illegal. And uh, the Judiciary Committee should be uh, very aggressive. And I I think Steve Cohen is coming out with something. May he be uh, visited by John Mitchell's ghost, Dwayne in Petaluma. We just have a minute, Dwayne, to the break. You got a quick one? Yes. For financing the uh, pandemic response, both uh, currently and in future, um, I I don't understand why the Democrats didn't call for a Roosevelt-style bank holiday where all the uh, mortgages uh, would be covered by the Federal Reserve and rents would be uh, deferred or postponed or or canceled uh, so that people would have their housing. And this seemed to me a a far better solution than paying people temporary unemployment or sending them a $1,200 check. It transfers to the to the cost to the people who uh, actually cause the problem. The, right. the let's, let's get the Congressman's thoughts on that. Order Dwayne. People. Thank you. Dwayne, I think we need a far bigger response. I mean, I've proposed $2,000 a month of checks to folks. I've, I've proposed uh, that we need to help people with rent, and we ought to be able to uh, spend this money in it with, with low interest rates and low inflation and inflation. Thank you. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the state of California, the 17th district, and the U.S. House of Representatives taking your calls for the hour in our national town hall meeting with Congressman Khanna right here on the Tom Harvard program. Hey, we have a special new video up over at TomHartman.com. And it's about how FDR in 1944, in fact, January 44, in his uh, State of the Union address, talked about how important it was to add rights to the Bill of Rights. The original Bill of Rights was all political rights. He said it's time to enshrine economic rights in our Constitution. I would add, like most of the governments of Europe have done. And this includes the right to housing, the right to food, the right to to a good job that pays well, the right to an education, including a college education, and the right to health care. It's pretty powerful stuff. And frankly, I think that what this coronavirus crisis is proving is that we are all in this together and that Reagan's thing about government is never going to help you was just a a load of crap. And so you can check it out over at TomHartman.com. 
Welcome back, Congressman Roe Khanna, taking your calls for the hour. Jan in Shoreline, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Hi, Representative Khanna. I am just irate at the cost of the people having to pay to get tested for COVID. And I recall when Katie Porter questioned Dr. Redfield about uh, 42 CFR 71.30, which is a uh, public health for public health emergencies that the CDC will pay for all testing and treatment of any public health emergency. And he agreed to that. And I'm wondering why isn't that happening? What do we need to do about it to get it so that people aren't having to pay? Tom mentioned yesterday somebody getting a bill for $3,000 for testing. Yeah, HHS yeah, announced yesterday, too, that uh, insurance companies don't have to pay for that. For yeah, they, they should be getting bills for testing. The, the, the problem is that when they go in, they often have other things that you have. I mean, if you have symptoms, you it's not just the testing. And they're getting billed for all of the other aspects of it. And that's why we need to say that uh, we should cover health care during this pandemic. It's a health care crisis. Make sure everyone is covered for their health care during this crisis. And that is something that progressives have been pushing for, and uh, we haven't been able to get it as part of the relief bills. David in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hello, Congressman. There was good news for progressives with the uh, recent election. There was a major defeat of a long-term congressman in New York, pending uh, another defeat in Kentucky of another potential uh, conservative Democrat. Will the Democratic leadership see this and uh, change, or will we have, we have new Democratic leadership, or will the Democratic leadership try to fight this? I, I would like to know your opinion. David, I think they're going to uh, fight it anytime there's an incumbent involved or anytime there's one of their candidates involved. I mean, I beat an incumbent to get into Congress, and as you know, so many of the folks, uh, uh, AOC, Jamal Bowman, but the, the policy is just default. The party's rallies around incumbency. That said, it's encouraging that you're seeing this generational change of more women, more people of color, more progressives getting elected. And I definitely think that's the future of the party. But it would be nice to think that uh, you aren't going to have a fight back. I mean, it's going to have to be earned and fought for to, to bring this change. Rick in Irwin, Tennessee, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. I was watching a financial channel yesterday and they brought up Andrew Yang and the guaranteed basic income. And they said that the banks liked them checks we got. And uh, the reason was because people were uh, paying their mortgages and they didn't have to uh, foreclose as much. And I was wondering, like, uh, between the HEROES Act and that last uh, $1,200 check we got, maybe we could turn this into something a little more lasting. Well, Rick, I agree with you. I mean, you know, there was a study today that came out that said consumer confidence was up in May. But they said that the biggest reason the consumer confidence was up was because of the stimulus check and because of unemployment benefits. And that effect is going to run out. I mean, unemployment benefits uh, run out July 31st, and the we've only had one stimulus check. I've said it has to be every uh, $2,000 every month. And so this is not just hurting families. It's important to said this is going to hurt our economy. It's going to mean consumer spending is going to go down, and uh, our economy is all based on consumer spending. So Trump's policies, the Republican policies, aren't just inhumane for workers. They're actually bad for our economic recovery. Joe in Minneapolis, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. It's quite a long here. I'll try to keep it as short as I can. I have a question. If I break the law and skip the country to try to run out the statute of limitations, if I understand right, if I come back in, they should still charge me with the law, with the crime? And if that's yes. true, can't, that be, can't that be applied to the president? If he's in office, you can't charge him with anything, but then the clock stops until he gets off the office, then the clock starts again? Hmm, great question. You know, my understanding is that the clock is still running for the statute of limitations while he's president, though I imagine that that's a question that would go up to the Supreme Court. And one could make the argument that the inability to prosecute him while president should toll the statute of limitations. It's a great question. I don't know if it's been decided or ever litigated. Yeah, or if it's a, a very specific law that prohibits that. What are your thoughts on the on the fate and future of uh, you know Donald Trump's uh, prosecution? 
after he gets out of office. And, and you know, is that even going to happen? I, it's I never happened a, to a president before. I think there's a real possibility uh, around him and his family. I certainly think it will be investigated, and I don't think anyone will be calling for it. But I, I think it's a real possibility. Yeah. Well, you know, let's hope so. <laughs> Although, as much as I cringe at the, I mean, this is something banana republics do, right? They, they prosecute the last guy who was in office. Anyhow, Congressman Ro Khan is with us taking your calls for the hour. We will be back in our national town hall meeting here on the Tom Hartman program with more of your calls for the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus right after You're this. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Ro Khanna's website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. You can tweet him at Rep Ro Khanna. He represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today we're reading from Our Women on the Ground, essays by Arab women reporting from the Arab world. And this is from the introduction by Sahafia. When I first visited Raqqa Hassan's Facebook page in 2014, I think it's Raqqa Hassan, in 2014, I was struck by her profile photo. The Syrian woman had paired a black hijab with a figure-hugging top that was embroidered with gold sequins. Her eyebrows were impeccably groomed, and bronzer contoured her cheekbones. 
It was a daring look, considering that she lived in Raqqa, the northern Syrian city that was, at the time, controlled by the most brutal Islamist group in the world. Most striking, though, was the defiant expression on Rakia's face, a defiance reflected in each one of her Facebook posts. Everything about the petite woman screamed, I am here and I will not be silenced. Rakia was a Sahafia, a woman journalist, who secretly reported on the crimes of ISIS from inside Raqqa. But she was no ordinary reporter, at least by mainstream media standards. The 31-year-old of Kurdish descent wasn't employed by a major news outlet. She never had a byline or a dateline and was never trained to cover warfare. She hadn't conducted any interviews, and she certainly wasn't impartial. She participated in anti-government protests and openly criticized Syrian President Bashir al-Assad. Online, Rakia was fearless, even though vocal opponents of ISIS were often swiftly executed. The citizen Sahafia wrote in chilling detail under a pen name, Nisan Ibrahim, about the atrocities the group was waging on the people of Raqqa. She shared her reports on Facebook, sometimes posting several times a day. As Rakia amassed a large social media following, her friends advised her to take down the photos of herself that were viewable to the public to protect her identity, but she refused. A philosophy graduate at the University of Aleppo, Rakia was known for the personal, poetic, and somber tone of her social media posts, which were always written in Arabic. She wavered between reporting what she'd witnessed and writing about how she felt. In December 2014, less than a year after ISIS declared Raqqa the capital of its caliphate, she posted the following, In Syria, life and dignity have become two parallel lines that never meet. Rakia mostly referred to ISIS as Daesh, the acronym for al-Dawah al Islaya. Uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and Greater Syria, which has reportedly drawn the ire of some ISIS commanders as it strips the terror group's label of its reference to Islam. Daesh has closed all internet cafes in the countryside and most likely in the city too, the citizen Sahafia wrote in June 2015. Without the internet, we will lose our only way of communicating. Dear God, emigration is a loss of dignity and a form of humiliation while staying here is hell. Dear God, where should we go? What Rakia presented in her harrowing posts was an authentic account of the events unraveling on the ground in Raqqa. Those accounts came at a time when few Westerners could report from within Syria, but they nonetheless commanded the international journalistic narrative on the country from afar. One of Rakia's final posts on Facebook was also her most unsettling. I'm in Raqqa and I've received death threats, she wrote on July 20th, 2015. When ISIS soldiers arrest me and kill me, it will be okay, because while they will cut off my head, I'll still have dignity, which is better than living in humiliation. Shortly after that post, Rakia was abducted by ISIS and never heard from again. In January 2016, her brother received confirmation from the terror group that she had been murdered along with five other women. At the time of this writing, Rakia's body has not been returned to her family. Well before Rakia was killed, I wondered what her story was. Why did she turn to writing and citizen journalism, despite knowing that death would be a very likely outcome of her outspokenness? Why did she choose the pen name Nisan, which means April in Arabic? How did she reconcile the identity she presented online with what was expected of her at home or by the society she lived in? Much like Rakia, scores of women in or from the Arab world and broader Middle East have quietly and courageously risked their lives to write about the coming apart of their region. These women are fierce reporters who have helped shape the narratives of perhaps the most important moments in their homeland's modern history, a time of failed revolutions and violent warfare, widespread political and social upheaval, and the worst refugee crisis since the end of the Second World War. And yet, despite their access, expertise, and the obstacles they must overcome in order to do their jobs, they haven't received as much attention as their Western and often white male peers. Our Women on the Ground, this book, presents intimate and rarely heard accounts of what it's like for a woman to report on a region she hails from. The stories of the 19 Sahafiat, whose essays make up this collection, are crucial not only because they have contributed to our understanding of what is transpiring in some of the most dangerous countries and protracted conflicts in the world, but also because they intrepidly crush stereotypes of what it means to be an Arab or Middle Eastern woman today, especially in the era of U.S. President Donald Trump, the rise of populism, and the far right in Europe and elsewhere, and ISIS. Arab women are often misunderstood on multiple levels and by multiple groups. On one hand, an Arab woman may be victimized or pitied by outsiders who think her to be submissive, oppressed, or subjugated. She's occasionally boxed into one identity, whereby, for example, her Arab identity is incorrectly conflated with a Muslim one, and she is frequently exoticized or superficially celebrated. On the other hand, an outspoken Arab woman is sometimes deemed improper or an anomaly by both outsiders and the society around her. Professionally, she might be considered less of a threat than her male peers or not taken seriously, and she is sometimes actively silenced 
or passively unheard. This anthology is, in part, an effort to disrupt such flimsy stereotypes. The Sahafiyat come from different generations, faiths, and nationalities, reflecting the diversity of an entire region. They are writers, reporters, broadcast journalists, and photojournalists. Our Women on the Ground is the book. Shay? Yes, sir. Oh, you are on the air. Good afternoon, Tom. Good afternoon, Representative Rosanna, and to everyone listening. I'm calling because I wanted to know if the Democratic Party is attempting to align themselves with surrogates, people who have the same vested interests, such as the Poor People's Campaign with Repairs of the Breach, Dr. William Barber. And also, I wanted to say this, not to be critical, but are the Democrats really at the party level really understanding what type of fight we're in for? Because we're not seeing the type of energy that we need in order to mobilize. People are energized, but we want to see more than what we're seeing from the top. For instance, why is it that the promised second tax cut from Trump in the 2018 election, why has that essentially been fulfilled through three stimulus packages? Because that added up to 84% or 84 cents out of every dollar going to the wealthy. Why would you agree to even to any package without saying we need mortgage and rent forgiveness. We need medical tech covered and we need total transparency as to where this money is going. Why are the corporations still being bailed out? I'd rather you not make any deal with the Republicans. Let them know that they do not hold all the power that you're fighting for the American people. So I just want to kind of let that kind of <laughs> permeate it, the air, please. Got Thank it. you so Got much. Shay, let's let him answer. Thank you. Well, Shay, I appreciate that. First of all, I share your admiration for Reverend Barber. I mean, he's a real uh, hero in what he's doing in the Deep South to build a coalition between uh, the white working class and black Americans and, and brown Americans and uh, bring people together around an agenda, agenda of economic justice and explain that racism has hurts poor whites as well. I mean, obviously it hurts blacks and brown people the most, but it also hurts uh, poor whites. I think he's brilliant, and, and many of us in Congress listen to his wisdom. On having more fight, I agree with you. I mean, uh, we needed to uh, push back more on things like the bailouts to these corporations, the PPP program. Well, we were in a tough place because people were really hurting. We wanted to get the unemployment extension. We wanted to get the stimulus checks, and we were forced to swallow some bitter pills to make sure that we could do that. But we will. I do agree that we need to be stronger in fighting back and uh, fighting for rental assistance, for mortgage assistance, uh, the, the policies you advocate. Tom in Aurora, Colorado, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hello, Congressman. My question is almost similar to what we just talked about. It's with the high unemployment numbers, we are facing massive uh, foreclosures coming to millions, literally, families. How are we going to protect them? Why are the banks getting the bailout, but the families who are losing their homes, you know, footing the bill? Well, Tom, I agree with you. I mean, Tim Ryan and I, right when the crisis started, proposed $2,000 a month for every American family uh, and that it should last for at least six months through the uh, crisis and that this would allow people, you know, if you have $4,000 as a household, you'd be able to use that money to pay rent. You'd be able to use that money to uh, put food on the table, uh, whatever you needed. I mean, this is... Uh, if we can afford to be bailing out the banks, if we can afford to be bailing out the corporations, why can't we be afford to bail out the working class, the middle class in this country? Anne in Sarasota, Florida, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Yes, uh, thanks, Tom and uh, Representative, Representative Kana. I just heard that the, Volk, the, the Republicans are attempting to destroy the Volcker rule, uh, that they are going to allow 
depositors money to be used for their gambling casino you know business that they 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 did in 2008 we know what happened then and also that they're going to not have to you know provide as much liquidity to the banks so that that sounds really bad and i'm wondering what are the democrats doing if anything to stop this because this would just be another disaster added on to all the disasters that are already going on and there is no way any the house of representatives is going to allow them to take away some of the protections that are that dodd frank had i mean the idea that banks should be allowed to speculate with money is just going to lead to an even worse crisis and I, it doesn't surprise me the Republicans want to do that because their interest is just trying to jack up the stock market as much as they can and try to artificially show some some inflation of value on Wall Street. But the Democratic House would never go along with that. Kurt from uh, Cali in Beverly Hills, California. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi. Thank you for taking my call, Tom. And hello, Congressman Brokana. Thank you for taking my call. First, I want to thank you, along with the other Democratic representatives, for all that you've done so far in getting the uh, CARES Act and the PPP passed, because I shudder to think where this country would be if we still would have had a Republican-controlled House and Senate. I highly doubt that any of this assistance would have occurred at all. So thank you very much. But now my question is this, though. Even though our credit card companies are allowing us to skip payments, spoke a, a little bit last week about the debt bubble that they're still building on us. And in my effort to try to get ahead of the interest I'm being charged, I made a substantial four-figure payment to a credit card company that will remain nameless, but they begin with a C and with an I. And <laughs> instead of giving me the available credit that I deserve and allowing me to get my FICO score down so I can qualify for a refinance and get myself, you know, resituated with a new loan on my home and pull some cash out, they swiped my available credit. And I'm sitting here now with $150 in my savings account. Hmm. Well, Kurt, I feel for you, and I think it is wrong. Uh, I mean, we, we can look into your... Congressman, it sounds like you're on a speakerphone and distant from it. We can hardly hear you. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. Yeah. We need to pass a legislation. We need to pass a bill that will restrict credit card companies from going after and suspend uh, any of the interest rate, and that ought to be part of the coronavirus relief. So if you write to us, we can see what we can do in your individual case or put you in touch with your member of Congress. But I agree with you that Congress needs to have this as part of its relief. It's crazy that people are uh, accumulating debt, and even if they're not paying, uh, that debt is piling up, and and that's going to destroy families. Do you see any kind of comprehensive re-regulation of the banks, you know, the equivalent of rolling back the uh, or returning to Glass-Steagall or those kinds of things? I think, it's, I, I think it's definitely on the table in terms of Glass-Steagall, which made sure that banks couldn't speculate and that they had to have greater deposits. I think one thing, though, that we really could do is to require companies to have a cash reserve to be able to make payroll for a few months. I mean, the idea that these companies were unable to make payroll two weeks into the crisis and were engaged in stock buybacks, I find unconscionable. Yeah, absolutely. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Coming up on the Science Revolution, it's amazing. Cleaner air during the pandemic is proving the benefits of a decarbonized economy. Dr. Jay Familietti is here on how the number of people harmed by floods will double worldwide by 2030. In Geeky Science, don't miss the seven things that happen when you stop eating meat or eat less meat during this pandemic. And our fact of the week is about plummeting wildlife and extinctions. Check out the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. You're on the air with uh, Congressman Khanna. Hey, good morning, Tom and Congressman Khanna. Hope you guys are well. Congressman Khanna, as you've said, the enhanced unemployment benefits have kept the bottom from falling out for 40 million something Americans. So it's no telling how ugly things will get if the Republicans let that expire at the end of July. But my question today centers around a federal jobs guarantee. A few days ago, HuffPost had an excellent piece titled, Millions Are Unemployed, Crises Abound, Is It Time to Guarantee Public Service Jobs? And it's essentially an interview with the economist Pavlina Cherneva, who says this would be merely following through on FDR's long ago promise of a job for every American who wants one. Something that seems like uh, would be hard for the Republicans to go against. They're always, you know, the, they want people to work. So, Congressman Conn, I say we could tax 100% of wealth uh, over 5 or $10 billion to help finance it. What do you think? Um, is there anyone talking about this? Seems like it would be a great policy for Joe Biden's platform. Well, I definitely think there are people talking about a strong uh, public works program and a, a strong jobs program, and that includes uh, strong spending on infrastructure. It includes a digital works program where we can hire people to do digital jobs. Uh, it includes uh, uh, building out broadband. Uh, it, it, the government really can invest in many ways to put people back to work, and it includes clean technology. And so what I would focus on is how does the government make the investments to get people back to work? Steve in Topanga, California. You're on the air with Congressman Conner. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. My uh, big worry is that the strategy for the Republicans are going to not certify a couple of states so the vote gets thrown back to the House, what Thomas talked about a lot. What's the strategy on the Democrats to do monitoring? and What can we do to protect the votes and make sure that it comes off fair and it gets certified because I really believe that's the plan to keep uh, Trump in. Anyway, I'll take my answer off the phone. Thanks, guys. 
You know, I appreciate that, and I, I agree with you and Tom that that's the concern. When people say, oh, Tom, Trump's not going to voluntarily leave office, I, I don't think that's the issue. I mean, remember that in 2016, the House and Senate certified the election, and I do think whoever the House or Senate certifies will be deemed the, the winner. And my concern is not that if Biden is certified the winner, that Trump doesn't leave. My concern is what you pointed out. What if states like Wisconsin Florida say that there was fraud and it's a close election of a few percent and they refuse to certify. It gets kicked to the House and the House doesn't vote by individuals. They vote by states and the Republicans control more states. That is the scenario that keeps me up at night that I'm most concerned about. And that's why we need to really fight for decisive wins. What Pelosi says is we've got to win by more than five points in these states. Yeah. And overwhelming. I mean, that was the Hilden Tays. Tilden Hayes election in uh, 1876. And that, you know, and that's what killed Reconstruction. You're the first elected official I've heard who agrees with me that this is probably the biggest threat to our elections, Congressman. I'm so glad to hear that. I do. I do. Um, uh, you're, you're a bigger student yeah. of history than me, but I, I think that the more people need to, to, to study the House of Rep- Representatives, I don't think people realize that it's not just the vote of who has more members, but it's a state-by-state yeah. vote. No, it's actually happened. Sam Tilden got more votes, both electoral and popular, in 1876, and yet Hayes became president. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is called Let the People Pick the President, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College by Jesse Wegman. And I'm reading from the introduction. This is uh, page 20. But what exactly can we do about the Electoral College? People have been trying to answer that question for more than two centuries. Since the first proposed amendment to the Electoral College was introduced in Congress in 1797, there have been more than 700 attempts to reform or abolish it, more by far than any other provision of the Constitution. Only one has succeeded, the 12th Amendment, which was ratified in 1804 to fix a technical flaw in the college's design, but left it otherwise intact. In the late 1960s, an amendment abolishing the college and replacing it with a national popular vote passed the House of Representatives and came extraordinarily close in the Senate, but was blocked by a filibuster. At the time, 80% of the American public supported switching to the popular vote, as did President Richard Nixon and other top Republicans and Democrats. To some, this litany of failure speaks to itself. I think it's a waste of time to talk about changing the Electoral College, former President Jimmy Carter said in 2000. Carter had supported a national popular vote in the 60s and the 70s. I would predict that 200 years from now, we'll still have the Electoral College, he said. Was President Carter right? Is it simply our fate as Americans to remain trapped by the historical quirks of a Constitution that is too easy to revere and too hard to change? Especially after the failed effort in the 60s when American politics were far less polarized to today and there was no simple partisan divide over the issue. It's clear that a constitutional amendment is not in the cards. But there may be another way. It's called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, an agreement among states to award all of their electors to the winner of the national popular vote rather than the winner of their statewide vote. The compact will take effect when it is joined by states representing a majority of electoral votes, 270, thus guaranteeing that the candidate who wins the most votes in the country becomes president. The ingenuity of the compact is that it doesn't touch the Constitution. Its target is the statewide winner-take-all rule, currently in use in 48 states. Maine and Nebraska are the exceptions. This rule is what makes presidents out of popular vote losers. It incentivizes presidential campaigns to ignore more than 100 million American voters living in non-competitive states, turning what should be a national electoral contest into a series of bitter hyperlocal brawls. It focuses nearly all campaign spending and policy proposals on a few so-called battleground states, where even a small shift in voting can lead to an electoral jackpot for one side or another. That familiar red and blue map we all obsess over every four years, it's nothing but a visual representation of state winner-take-all rules, with each state stamped Democratic or Republican as though that is its true identity, regardless of how many voters from the other party cast a ballot there. This is bad for democracy, and it should concern all Americans, no matter where they live or which political party they support. In contrast, when candidates know that all votes are equal and they need a majority of them to win, they're forced to seek the support of all Americans and craft policies that appeal to as many people as possible. 
The Popular Vote Compact was launched in 2006 and got its first member state, Maryland, the following year. As of October 2019, 15 states in the District of Columbia, together representing 196 electoral votes, had joined. 74 more, and the compact takes effect. So far, only Democratic majority states have joined the compact. And while the 2016 election dealt a significant setback to efforts to enlist Republican-led states, lawmakers of both parties around the country continue to support it, and Republican-led chambers have passed it in four states. Critics of the compact call it an end run around the Constitution. And it's true that the Constitution's framers never mentioned something like a popular vote compact. They also never mentioned the winner-take-all rule, but that didn't stop the majority of states from rapidly adopting it to benefit themselves. That's the whole point of the compact. The framers gave states near total control over how to allocate their electors. The fact that the compact is an agreement among states also means that, unlike a constitutional amendment, which is effectively permanent, member states may back out if they later decide they don't want to be a part of it. Opponents of the popular vote argue that no matter how you might achieve it, it's not the way our country is built. As the popular saying goes, we're a republic, not a democracy. The Electoral College is one of the core Republican elements of the framers' constitutional design, like the Senate and the Supreme Court, which are there precisely to prevent majorities from running rampant. In other words, majority rule is not our only organizing principle and perhaps not even our most important. There are two problems, however, with this argument. The minor one is on the surface and involves terminology. The United States is both a republic and a representative democracy. The two terms describe the same thing, a government in which the people hold the ultimate power but elect representatives to make laws, policies, and other decisions on their behalf. The founders used the term republic to distinguish what they were building from a monarchy. For them, democracy generally referred to the direct variety as in ancient Athens or the New England town meeting, where the people literally make the laws themselves. But American politics at the national level has never been and never will be a direct democracy. So any distinction between the terms today is meaningless. As one political columnist put it, to say that the U.S. is a republic and not a democracy is like claiming to eat beef and pork, but not cows and pigs. The bigger problem with the saying is the implication that lies beneath it. The book, Let the People Pick the President, by Jesse Wegman. Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls for the hour. Jim in Long Branch, Texas. Jim, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Good morning, gentlemen. Last week, the temperatures inside the Arctic Circle have been at 100 Fahrenheit and over. And uh, even with COVID, the reduction in CO2 is going to be only a few percent worldwide. And after that, it's going to increase because everybody wants to start the economy. There is time to move in large numbers to eco-sustainable communities with a universal green income and reduced footprint. With, uh, with a modified FDR eco-sustainable plan. Will the congressman support something like that? Peace. Jim, I, first of all, I agree with you that it's a, a huge crisis that we have over 100 degrees at the Arctic. It's not gotten nearly enough news because we've got so many other crises of coronavirus and, of course, the uh, racial injustice, but we ought to be tackling that. And one of the things I read is that the quarantine in some ways has reduced our carbon footprint. So we know that a lot of our actions can actually make a huge difference. And I think we have to have a sustainable plan, uh, an investment in renewable energy, an investment in energy efficiency and standards that uh, we make sure we get to the 400 parts per million goal that the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change outlined. Robert in Greenville, North Carolina, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yes, Congressman. I'd like to know about that $500 billion that they don't want to let us know what they do with it. When we're supposed to have transparency, you know, it's that's a lot of money. It's a half trillion dollars. Yes, sir. It's, it's worse than that. It's not just that they aren't letting us have transparency on the $500 billion that's Mnuchin's fund and to go to corporations. Is that they're not giving us transparency on the PPP loans either, which is about six seven hundred billion and has gone to businesses across this country i believe some of those have been private equity firms i believe some of those have been multimillionaires who have gotten some of these funds and they should disclose who got the funds i mean 
if they did it legitimately, fine. But they are shielding these people who went and got these funds. Oh, well, small businesses, true small businesses, didn't. We need more disclosure. James in Fayetteville, Arkansas. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hey, Tom and Congressman Kana. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my question would be with regard to student loan debt forgiveness. Uh, my wife and I feels like we've been paying it off for five years now and about 80000 knocked down, but still have about 20000 left to go. And my question would be, if Biden does win, what does the timeline look like for you know, getting that on the table and, and kind of what do you see as the path forward? James, I sympathize. I had to uh, took in, taken out over $100,000 of student loans. Uh, I was fortunate and have done well and been very lucky to, to, to not have that uh, a burden. But there was a year in my life where I had to go on forbearance and I couldn't pay the, the, the payments and the interest just kept accumulating. Uh, I, I'm optimistic we will get some relief. I know Joe Biden supported uh, Senator Warren's proposal for $10,000 of relief in the HEROES Act, the coronavirus. We couldn't get that in. Uh, the House bill, but uh, I believe if he's president, we will get some form of student relief, death relief. Alan, Zanesville, Ohio. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hello. I know voting, mail voting is uh, more efficient, can be safer. However, like in Georgia, when they were late sending it out, heat, humidity, sealed return envelopes, created messes that couldn't be resolved because of the timing. What sort of safeguards do we have in place that this isn't repeated around the country? Well, that is my concern. I have two concerns of this election. I have three concerns. One is that we don't get complacent. I mean, this race is going to tighten. I don't think it's going to be a 12-point race when we come into September, October. Uh, two, what you're saying, that the absentee ballots aren't going to go out, the people aren't going to fill them out, that the polling places are going to be restricted. All of that, I think, is going to lead to a, a outcome where even if Joe Biden is up, the margins will be close enough uh, for these states to contest them, and they will try to throw this to the House of Representatives where we could lose the election. That is the only path that I see of Trump really winning at this point, and, and I think that's what he is counting on. Yeah. It's remarkable. Uh, one month before the election of 1988, Michael Dukakis was 17 points ahead of George Herbert Walker Bush. Was that one month? Wow. It was in the Axios newsletter this morning. They said just weeks before. So I, you know, I thought it was a month out. But in any case, what should we, we be watching as we go into the next week? Well, I, if we just passed the police and nonsense, I, I think the Democrats, we need to have an economic agenda that talks about getting $2,000 a month to Americans, making sure that we have a real public works program to hire people back, making sure we're dealing with rent and mortgage. I think whoever is going to be better positioned for November is who's going to have an economic message. Trump's message is reckless. The uh, inability to deal with coronavirus is what's hampering the economy. We need to offer an alternative. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. back. So in addition to all this, Donald Trump wants to go after social media now because they're pointing out his lies. And, and in fact, social media has done a lot of damage to America and the American body politic, with the most visible example being how social media helped put Donald Trump in the White House in 2016. But even more concerning should be Fox News and right-wing hate radio. New study out of Columbia University finds that when people in any particular zip code experience a 1% increase in Fox News viewership, it, quote, and this is the study from Columbia, it, quote, reduces the propensity to stay at home by 8.9 percentage points compared to the pre-pandemic average. In other words, people, people are literally taking their lives in their hands because of the misinformation and lies that they're hearing on Fox News. One of the reasons so many people have died in America is because conservative media has been repeatedly and consistently promoting the idea that this is some kind of democratic hoax or a bad flu. Right-wing media has gone from being on the fringe of crackpots and paranoids to a major influence in American culture and politics. And at the same time, the billionaire owners of this media 
have been successfully avoiding any kind of responsibility or liability for the political chaos, the destruction, and now the death that they're helping cause, all while they're laughing all the way to the bank. I mean, before the coronavirus, you could argue that right-wing media had just been disruptive to democracy and the public good. But now this new study from Columbia University shows it's actually responsible for death. In Rwanda, it was right-wing talk radio that incited and led that country's genocidal slaughter of its own people. In the 1930s in Germany, right-wing radio talk shows were used to identify Jews and trade unionists. They literally did it on the radio. Neighbors were encouraged to call in and denounce their neighbors so that angry mobs could attack them. Today in the United States, people who are heavy consumers of right-wing media have been threatening elected officials with guns, spitting what they claim is virus-laden saliva on workers in stores who are just trying to protect the public by enforcing mask rules or passing out masks, and gone out of their way to provoke police killings of people of color. A court in Seattle this week threw out an attempt to hold Fox News responsible for some of the deaths in Washington State that came from commentators' irresponsible statements on Fox And since Trump and McConnell have packed about a quarter of all the federal judges in this country with right-wing unqualified ideologues, it's unlikely the courts are going to help us out any. But the challenge America confronts today is how to reverse the damage that three decades of right-wing media have done to our country and to our people. So there's that. Anyhow, Jack in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Jack, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. So I I got online, you know, Trump and his absolute insanity and his craziness. And a story came to me that I learned about when I was living in Germany. And evidently, all of the generals, as Hitler was retreating, because he'd lost from Paris, he ordered the generals to destroy Paris. And it was really to burn the city to the ground. Right. I can't have it, so nobody else can. And I and the generals refuse to do it. And this is the only thing that's giving me hope today, that we have enough people still who will refuse to destroy our country. I think that's what he's trying to do. I think you're right, Jack. And the fact that he just nominated a right-wing nut job for one of the senior positions in the Pentagon gives me considerable concern. If his secretary of defense has stood up to him slightly, you know, said basically we shouldn't have been there for that Bible photo op, et cetera, as did the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. That gives me some hope. But Trump still has, what, nine months to replace these guys? So or or seven months, I guess. Yeah. So uh, I'm yeah, I'm still very concerned. But uh, Jack, you, you raise a really, really important story. Thank you very much. And thanks for sharing that. Martin in Huntington Beach, California. Hey, Martin, what's on your mind today? Oh, hello, Tom. I wanted to say what should be required reading is Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah, remind me about Slaughterhouse-Five. It's been, that was in high school. I don't remember the story. Well, Kurt Vonnegut uh, Jr., who I think was the greatest man of the 20th, uh, 20th century, he was in Dresden, a uh, meat locker in a slaughterhouse, and he wrote this book. And, you know, it's kind of a science fiction gallows humor thing about Billy Pilgrim, how he got stuck in a time uh, glitch and everything went backwards. All the uh, planes went backwards. All the bombers went back into the planes. All the bullets went back into the guns and all the resources went back into the earth, never to harm anyone again. And everyone turned into babies. Everything went, all the wars went in reverse. Interesting. He was a great man, and, uh, you know, he's a Mark Twain of the 20th century, and I think he's just a visionary. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it's amazing the literature that came out of that era in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s in particular, you know, because people were looking back on what happened in Germany in the 30s and 40s and and projecting, you know, how could this happen in our society and, and, you know, what's the antithesis of that, What you know, what is the thesis of that? Go ahead, Martin. I'm sorry. It's like history's repeating itself again. I mean, what's he capable of? He hasn't got there yet, but how far will he go? You know, who, yeah. you know, who, who might he gas if he wants to get rid of some evidence? It's just anything is possible. He's, a, he's like one of the monst- monsters of history. He's in the genocide club. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it seems. I want to say this too shall pass. I'm, my big concern is that is that Trump is not going to pass, that Trump has released a virus into, into the American body politic that's not going to be resolved any day soon. Thanks for the call, Mark. Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day, Sue, who works on our newsletter, puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together and it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. So check it out at TomHartman.com. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.